Hey, Cinemaniacs, welcome back to The Den of Sin with Devin and James. I'm Devin Lucas, and right here with me is my co-host, James Dufresne. How you doing, James? I'm doing good, Devin. It's been a little bit. I, I feel like I say that every episode. It's been a little bit, but uh, <laughs> actually, it's been, it hasn't been as long in between episodes as it had been, so... I know we'd wanted, we planned to do this episode specifically for a while now, but um, yeah, I'm excited to uh, be recording once again. It's always a pleasure. So, all right, yeah, I'm happy to be back with you too. Uh, and we're we're getting better. We're, we'll get there. Yeah, we're trying. We're get we'll get into a groove, and hopefully, everybody's still entertained when we do pop up. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. For today's topic, um, this is actually going to be another one of our tribute episodes. Um, obviously, unfortunately, a tribute episode, although this is somebody who I've admired for a long time and, and would have probably at some point brought up for an episode anyways. Well, yeah, that's going to say is like, I mean, this this is uh, somebody that I'm sure we would have gotten around to very soon, even if they hadn't unfortunately passed. So, yeah. And of course, we are talking about writer, director, actor, Peter Bogdanovich, who passed away at the uh, ripe young age of 82 on uh, January 6th of 2022. I kind of suggested Bogdanovich, there's been so many people that have passed lately, and we just uh, lost um, Trumbull this week too. Um, is it Douglas? Douglas Trumbull, or was that the I, son? I, maybe. <laughs> the special effects artist basically yeah. behind Industrial Light and Magic and you know, kind of, kind of the guy who um, kind of gave George Lucas his his wings in a way, X wings, I should say. <laughs> Perfect. But I'm um, Ching. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I would also love to do something like this for for some of the other people, like like Simi Poitier is obviously a huge loss, and yes. maybe at some point we can do. I know that there's a uh, In the Heat of the Night is coming out on 4K very soon, which I plan to get. I've I've had it on blu-ray but i've heard that the 4k is going to come with the two other mr tibbs films as special features which were uh oh cool they call me mr yeah they call me mr tibbs and i believe it's the organization was the third one and i've never seen the sequel so maybe sometime down the future we can make up for the lost time and do a little mini tribute to poitier as well but uh poitier is an actor of course uh you know dying in i believe he was 90 that's just far too long of a career to do in even probably four of our episodes. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel like if we don't get around to him at some, I mean, it would be a crime if we didn't get around to him at some point. So, so yeah, look for that maybe sometime this, this year, that way we're not uh, pushing too many of the tributes right up here against each other, but I'll admit rather selfishly kind of push doing a Peter Bogdanovich one is, is because I have certainly not a relationship, a personal relationship with Peter Bogdanovich, but he was a, a pretty semi-regular at my old work in New York when I worked in the movie theater. And uh, I, of course, would know who he was as soon as he walked in the door, as did everybody else at the theater, because he always came in with his bandana around his neck. And, uh, <laughs> and he's a very distinct looking person, even even without the gla trademark glasses and the, the bandana, the neckerchief bandana, as you point out. He's just a very interest very particular looking human being but he ha also has a very signature look too so exactly and he was always very kind as a regular i never really got to know him like i'm 
100% positive he would have had no idea who I was had I approached him again outside of that theater, you know, almost 20 years later. But when he would come in, especially if he came in alone, which he would occasionally during our eight-week Orson Wells Festival, he was a little bit more approachable and, and he liked to talk. He, Peter Bogdanovich truly loved the sound of his own voice. <laughs> and anyone that's really interested in doing a deep dive into Bogdanovich, the person that is, uh, he there's just a veritable cornucopia of material out there. Um, I would actually highly suggest um, Turner Classic Movies just did a long form podcast interview with him, the multiple episode arc on their podcast, The Plot Thickens. He was the, uh, the central character of season one, uh, which they've since gone on to do the making of The Bonfire, The Vanities, and I believe the Desi Lu story of, of uh, Lucy and Ricky. Um, or Lucy and Desi. And, but that first one, it, the, that's the one that I listened to. It was uh, really in-depth. Ben Mankiewicz and Peter Bogdanovich. And I've listened to a few things since then, like the WTF with Mark Marone's really good. And if you're looking for like young whippersnapper Bogdanovich, there's also a really- Did you just call him Marone? Mar- what, what is Mark it? Marin. Mark Marin. Mark Marin. I knew that too. Why did I say Marone? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I guess I the could Italian have said Marone. Master Marone. no i i actually like him a lot but i i I admit i've only been listening to the podcast for a couple of months now oh wow really what wtf really that's interesting i'm gonna tell you a little secret here james uh up until about a year ago i didn't give a shit about most podcasts (laughs) (laughs) that's understandable i guess (laughs) but i always like mark maron uh as a performer yeah same Anyways, uh, he did like a full episode with Bogdanovich as the guest and, and uh, really kind of got into some of the particulars. And, and uh, like I was going to say, if, if you want young whippersnapper Bogdanovich, there's a great interview on YouTube, uh, the old Dick Cavett show, where he appeared with uh, Robert Altman, Mel Brooks, and Frank Capra, of all people. So uh, you kind of get to see him kind of being the, the pompous one of that group. And that's kind of a pompous group. Group, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but completely entertaining. Have we talked before about how insistent he was that he wore a bandana and that it was not an ascot? No. <laughs> this is a touchy point for him. And I just want to bring it up because it kind of sums up his personality, I think. He started wearing a bandana around his neck when he was on the set of The Last Picture Show, which we'll get into in a little bit here, because he had heard it was a regular Texan thing to do. And the reason was, so I've heard it gets pretty fucking hot in Texas uh, when it's not, you know, freezing cold like you've been in the last couple of weeks. But uh, it's hot again today. So, okay, good. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But, but, you know, cowboys would wear bandanas around their neck to keep the sun off of it and to wipe off sweat and whatever and so that's exactly why he did it he thought it was a nice touch and then everyone would refer to it as his ascot he would get really touchy about it because he would explain that an ascot is a it's made of silk and it's a completely different thing and he would say i would never be pretentious enough to walk around wearing an ascot not realizing it looked just that pretentious to be walking around in his bandana um but I, I think the, the point is the message that was being sent here on a personality level was that, you know, an ascot, like we said, it, it would be a very pretentious sort of uh, highfalutin film director thing to do to wear an ascot. Uh, whereas I think Bogdanovich was more along the lines of a city boy who desperately wished he was a cowboy, like a lot of his heroes. 
So it's actually kind of a sweet thing, it, it, at least as far as I see it. I mean, the thing is, though, like, I don't, I mean, we'll get into it when we actually start talking about the movie, but I think he'd had an affinity with Texas and, and the South or, and even the West. And, like, you know, he definitely, with the last picture show, it's like he really understood the South and specifically Texas. Like, he, there's like this atmosphere and an attitude that's, like really deep in that movie that you would think was filmed by an actual Texan or a Southerner. So maybe he did have some sort of spiritual affinity with it, but, uh, but yes, it's, uh, it's a little bit of an affectation that the handkerchief, but, uh, you know, I think for a guy in his eighties though, I thought it looked cool. So, I mean, you know, whatever, do, do, do your thing, do your thing. Don't let, uh, don't let people judge you. I completely <laughs> agree. And I am, uh, Proud to say that I have stood close enough on multiple, multiple occasions that I could have just reached out and tugged it off of him. Um, <laughs> and, and I never did because, well, because for one thing, I probably would have gotten fired for touching Peter Bogdanovich. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I always thought cool. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would have deserved to be fired for that. Uh, you know, you don't tug on Superman's Super- face. <laughs> Dude, I literally was just about to say that. <laughs> you don't spit into the wind. And- you don't mess around with Peter? That's right. <laughs> Bogdanovich. Yes. <laughs> but anyways, uh, on a quick biographical end, it's, in fact, it, I should just point out now, it's kind of interesting to talk about Peter Bogdanovich. This is something that I've learned over the last couple of weeks of going over his stuff. And we're really going to focus on the early stuff, not the later stuff. Um, and, and we'll explain a little bit as to why, too. It's not just a time saver. But... You know, we, we've done tributes in the past to like uh, to Carl Reiner and Richard Donner, and we've spoken extensively about those two guys within those episodes, but we really focused on the films. And I think for Carl Reiner, I don't think we even mentioned Rob Reiner even once. And uh, Richard Donner, oh God, her name's failing me now, but Richard Donner's wife was a- Lauren a Schuler Donner. Yes. Sorry, I, I couldn't remember the name, but- um, she has an incredible career all her own on top yes. of what she did with Donner. And she was mentioned by the end of our Donner episode, but it was because I, I really look at it as, as uh, Reiner and Donner were both really craftsmen and not that McDonovich wasn't, but he was much more personal. I mean, he really kind of lands somewhere between the craftsman like take on the work, like a Richard Donner and the highly personalized style of say a Woody Allen. And I, and I I, I don't think we're going to be able to talk about even these early films without getting into like affairs he was having and uh, you know, his, his love life, which was, let's face it, maybe a little bit problematic or at least as problematic as any of his uh, heroes or contemporaries were. Well, and I think that's also part of it. I think if you're talking about Bogdanovich, you have to talk about his relationship with film and other major filmmakers. He sort of had a very close relationship you know, with his history as a, you know, starting off as a film journalist, like he knew some of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And he credits a lot of them for giving him a lot of great advice, you know, practical filming advice and stuff. But, you know, well known if you're a Peter Bogdanovich fan that, you know, he was friends with, you know, um, Howard Hawks and he was, you know, uh, very famously had a really great working, uh, had a very close relationship um, with, um Orson Welles. I almost blanked on Orson Welles' name, but yeah. So you have to, if you're a film fan and you know, and like about that era of film, like I hear about Peter Bogdanovich. It, I don't even think his movies are, and 
we'll get into his movies. He the films we'll talk about tonight specifically are definitely he would be famous and rightfully famous just for making the movies that you know we'll talk about tonight. But so much of his persona and everything was his the fact that he was friends with he knew Hitchcock, he knew Orson Welles, he knew Howard Hawks, he knew you know Ford and all these amazing filmmakers and exactly. you know had a so yeah. Cary Grant was another good friend. John Wayne was a good friend uh, who probably made lots of comments about his bandana. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he kind of stood out in that way. And, you know, you hear about the filmmakers from that era, specifically, you know, the 60s, 70s and, and into the early 80s. And, and all those guys, you know, like Francis Ford Coppola was hanging out with George Lucas, was hanging out with Steven Spielberg, was hanging out with Martin Scorsese, was hanging out with you know, Brian De Palma was hanging out with John Milius, like straight down the line. These guys yeah. were like a, a pack. And yeah. Bogdanovich worked with those people. And in fact, he's, he uh, was part of a production company with Francis Ford Coppola and uh, William Friedkin uh, that produced some of these movies that we're going to uh, bring up here in a minute. But uh, he, he didn't really hang out with those guys. Bogdanovich wasn't part of the pack. And it was because, you know, he was instead you know exchanging numbers with you know frank sinatra and jerry lewis and audrey hepburn and all these other people that he idolized growing up and for that i am insanely jealous and yeah. as much as i would love to hang out with scorsese and coppola and all those guys i think i would be the bogdanovich of that pack i think i would probably be hanging out with the guys that inspired me more than the guys who uh, might actually dare i say help my career more in a <laughs> actual real-time level and, and I think McDonovich might have actually had a little more success had he hung around with a, a circle of people who weren't already in the twilight of his career, of their career. But I don't yeah. think he cared about that. I think that he no. would have traded all of that or did trade all of that for his friendship with these other people. I agree 100%. And I think it's one of those things where you couldn't, like, if you're a film fan, which he obviously was, that was his you know, passion. If you're a film fan and you get the chance to hang out with you know, Marty Scorsese, that's as cool as that is, you know, he, he's a contemporary, that's not as going to be as cool as hanging out with Howard Hawk. I mean, you know, the people that inspired your, like, that you grew up idolizing, fucking Alfred Hitchcock, like, John you know, Ford. John Ford, exactly. So like, you know, as cool as it would be, you know, if you're a fan of specifically 70s film, the 70s American film um, scene, obviously hanging out with Coppola and Scorsese and even George Lucas and you know a lot of the guys that were all friends and that that's amazing but taking it a generation back like is it I mean I love Martin Scorsese of course but you know Alfred fucking Hitchcock Orson Welles it's just like <laughs> I think he made the right decision yeah I think he did too I think he was I think he was happy with his uh professional career at least for the the first half um, and then he, of course, um, I don't know how far we'll get into the tragedy uh, of his life, uh, which occurred in the early 80s. And that really derailed him uh, both uh, personally and uh, professionally. professionally and financially and just wiped him out. And at a certain point, he Bogdanovich takes a lot of shit because, frankly, past 1985, a lot of his output was really like a lot of TV movies and stuff that just really didn't stand out and it was because he needed the money and and i'll if we have time i'll i'll mention what he spent his money on because it is a film uh for now let's let's start right here at the top with uh 
with young buck Peter Bogdanovich uh, working with Roger Corman, who of, of course is also the starting point for a lot of the other names we just mentioned. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, yeah, and that's the thing is that's just to touch on this thing real quick. I think I always assumed before I really like got into the history because I knew he was a Corman guy and that he started with Corman. I just assume like all of those guys, they all sort of had a working relationship with each other and that he was really close with Coppola and those guys, but he, you know, like you said, he was friendly with them, but he, that wasn't his scene. But yeah, the targets. Um, God, I love targets. I I think just the the his like the story behind targets and how it got made, and you know that's fascinating on its own. Um, even the inspirations behind it. But I think the fact that he could make such a honestly well crafted film that still is impactful. To, to this day and i haven't seen it in a few years but it's a film i like a lot and like it's still it's, timely yeah and well, i was just about to say more than sadly it doesn't ever seem to not be timely but um well put but yeah like the history of basically you know he was working like he met i think he met you might know more about this than i do but i think he met corman at a party and corman knew about his writing and was like you know do you want to make a movie and you know ended up basically getting a gig with corman to, to make you know this movie and he had basically basically said you can make this movie but you know we have to use boris karloff we've got two days of filming you got to use 20 minutes of the terror which was a, you know his most recent horror film he just made with corman and the fact that he was able to do that and still pull off a very interesting intelligent you know i, I can't see it lumped as horror all the time and i don't see it as a horror movie specifically although I, I don't really the older i get the least the i'm less interested in defining things by t like titles and genres but it, to me it's it's like a character study more than anything it's just a very dark uh thriller it has a lot of thriller aspects but it's a good movie it's like i think it got labeled as like a midnight movie and i think you know like a few other corman pictures i think people just thought it was like a shitty movie like it was like oh it's so bad it's good kind of movie and it's not that it's got some weird you know the way it's told that there's like two parallel stories and they're sort of at first there's not anything that's really you know it's not till the end of the movie where you start to see what the where this is going but regardless of whatever faults it may have it's such a well-crafted movie bogdanovich is actually in the movie as an actor i think it's karloff is fucking great in it i remember reading a review in the late 90s about it and it made fun of Karloff, like an over the what? hill car, like passes. And I remember being like, what? No, like, but I hadn't seen the movie when I had read this thing. And then I saw, I was like, the fuck are you talking about? Karloff is great in this. Getting to see him actually act and really be, and I mean, he basically plays himself in it. But you know, is I don't know. It's just, I, I, I think that I was led under the impression before I saw it, that it was a different kind of movie from the movie I first saw, you know, a long, long time ago still, but. I think my impression of the movie was blown away when I actually saw it because I just heard that it was this like schlocky Corman film. And you know, I love schlocky movies, so it's not like it's not even like a, an insult, but it just wasn't the movie I thought it was going to be. I was actually very impressed and also a little haunted by it. Like, there's it's actually pretty fucked up in its own way. You know, it's a little dated in some regards, but I think the building of the characters basically inspired by um, why am I blanking his name? The the tower shoot. The Texas, Whitman. yeah, Whitman. I almost said Walt Whitman, but I was like, that's not right. <laughs> no, <laughs> but you know, he based it off of actually two different real life spree killers, but mainly Whitman and you know uh, the the shootings at 
at the University of Texas or Texas whatever in, in Austin, right by me. Anyways, but like that that character story, the sort of clean Kyle American kid who's obsessed with guns and has, you know, some father issues or whatever, but like the way it's portrayed isn't even it's it's told in this sort of like slow and I think you know, some people might say the movie's slow. I mean I could see that as a criticism if you're used to modern editing and stuff, but it that lethargic like you know, there's times when you see him, he looks like he's going to shoot somebody, but it, like, I just think that the way it's told is brilliant. And especially for, and it wasn't really actually AIP at that point. I don't, I, I it think wasn't, it wasn't, uh, Corman was still working with AIP and I, Corman expected to get Schlock back from Bogdanovich. Um, yeah. told, I, I think the actual equation worked out to Boris Karloff owes me two days. So I want you to go and shoot 20 minutes with Boris Karloff. Then I want you to use, 20 minutes of the terror, the last yeah. film with, with Karloff. Yeah. And then you've got 40 minutes with Boris Karloff. And then you've got 10 days to go out and shoot 40 minutes with other actors and create a story around that. And, and then he punctuated it with, and by the way, I've made a full feature in two days. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and uh, McDonough went off. Yes, exactly. Uh, famously is his uh, autobiography is uh, how I, made a million dollars in Hollywood and never lost a dime. Something like that. Or maybe how he made a hundred films in, in Hollywood and never lost a dime. Something along those lines. I read it 20 years ago. I actually I read it back when I worked at that theater. But anyways, yeah. Uh, so McDonovich was given an assignment, which is not really something that he was doing uh, or that anybody was really doing at that point in time. Uh, I, I guess it was a little more common then than it is now, but uh, he was given an assignment to write this Boris Karloff story. And the way that McDonovich tells it, he was shaving one day and he's like, God, I would love to just show some footage from the, uh, from the terror and then just pull back. And we realize we're looking at a movie screen and Roger Corman himself is sitting next to Boris Karloff himself. And Boris Karloff tells Corman, you know, this movie's a piece of shit. <laughs> this movie's really <laughs> awful. Uh, and, and from there he, he knew he had something and he started to craft this, screenplay about an aging horror star in, in the movie his name is byron orlock so barely disguising uh, exactly as boris karloff actually gets um filmmaker samuel fuller to co-write it with him and he goes uncredited uh, and he also got some help from his wife at the time polly platt who helped with his first four films which are arguably considered his masterpieces yes um and she gets a story by credit on this but he she take he takes it to roger corman and and corman calls him up and he goes well we've got a problem he goes what's your problem he says you handed me a brilliant fucking script it's like well, what's wrong with that he says well i don't make brilliant fucking scripts <laughs> <laughs> i'll produce this but we can't take this to aip i think we've got to take it to paramount or something so it's actually not an aip film but it is produced by corman and uh uh, they gave him a little extra money so that uh, he didn't shoot everything with Karloff in two days. He got, he got five. five days. Yeah. Yes, with exactly. Karloff. And then he, he shot this side story that doesn't involve Karloff at all about this uh, Whitman inspired shooter and kind of seeing him as he's getting to his breaking point, which is not, there's not tension in his life that's leading to the breaking point. It almost seems like he's doing it out of boredom. Yes, I've heard or, some people speculate that he was a Vietnam veteran, but the movie came out in 68. And I, I don't think that people's heads were there yet uh, in 68, at least not when they were shooting it in 67, you know, when he's writing it probably in 66. Uh, so I don't think there's any kind of like a Travis Bickle sort of uh, ticking time. Yeah, I, I never got that anyways. Yeah. 
um, he, he just seems to be a random killer. And then the stories start to converge. And then uh, the, the Karloff story is that Karloff is going to retire from acting because his last film was so horrible, which is where the terror comes in. And he's basically upsetting Peter Bogdanovich, who has a script for him that would be perfect for him, um, which you kind of get the idea that that script is targets. But he, he refuses to even read it because he's so he, he feels like he's an outdated boogeyman. And he gives this great monologue about how he's an outdated boogeyman. And he points to the newspaper and says, this, this is your real story. And it's a story of a shooting. Um, and so it really is showing that the old boogeymen don't work anymore in this modern world because we have a whole new form of boogeyman that's a lot more real than any kind of vampire or werewolf or zombie or what have you. And, and uh, it's all building up to... Uh, Byron Orlock making a final appearance at a drive-in to at the premiere for his latest crap movie Uh, and the drive-in also happens to be where this uh, sniper killer has has decided to set up uh, camp for that night Um, so everything's kind of leading to a point but the two stories are told um, kind of simultaneously and separate and it's really fascinating the way he cuts back and forth you really get into both like it goes from the Byron Orlock story to the killer story. And I'm like, oh, I'm not done with the Orlock one. But then it gets into the killer story stuff so much that when it goes back to Orlock, I'm like, no, but I'm still. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so he really plays with you. And, and it's just it's brilliantly done. And Karloff is is a champ through the whole thing. And he was 80 years old at the time. The dude had emphysema, rheumatoid arthritis, literally had half of one lung left in his body. Uh, wore braces on both legs, couldn't stand or walk without a cane, and spent his whole time between scenes in a wheelchair with an oxygen mask on. And meanwhile, as soon as they call action, he's giving like basically his best performance since Frankenstein's Monster, I think. Agreed, 100%. I think he was on record with Bogdanovich and saying like, you've given me like a huge gift. Like I, he's like, this will be my last movie because he knew like, one, he's, it was going to be his last movie regardless, but, you know, in the way of saying, like, I'm glad this was the movie I could go out on. And, like, although I, I could, think, unfortunately, he did one more, like, bad Mexican werewolf movie. Yeah, I think so. Half of one lung costs money. That's, <laughs> that's 100%. <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, but, yeah, I think he was robbed of an Oscar nomination for that. I don't know if he was robbed of a win. I don't know who won in 68, actually, off the top of my head, but he was at least deserving of a, of a nomination. Uh, and, you know, he ad-libbed that moment. There's <laughs> there's a great moment. Bogdanovich's character and Karloff's character get drunk together and they wake up in the same bed in the morning. And Bogdanovich <laughs> yes. wakes up with a start because because he woke up next to Byron Orlock. And and so you're laughing because, you know, that's that's generally funny, you know. But then Byron Orlock gets out of bed because someone's knocking at the door and he's walking across the room with his cane and he's moving as slow as Karloff does. And he crosses past a mirror and he makes himself jump. And apparently <laughs> that was improvised. And that to me is like the comic moment. That's that's great. <laughs> so he had some, uh, some moderate success with targets. Like you said, some people just didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, it wasn't given the prestige that it probably deserved. It kind of, I, I wouldn't categorize it as a flop of any kind, but he was able to get uh, onto his next project, which uh is the one that really put Peter Bogdanovich on the map. And rightfully so. Yes. And that was, of course, 1971's The Last Picture Show. Now, I'm assuming you've seen this one. Yeah, it's it's the only Bogdanovich film I actually own. Um, yeah. 
I own Targets, I think, on a Corman collection, but uh, I was trying to find it before we record this, and I couldn't find where I had it. But I'm 95% sure, certain I own it in some form. I, yeah. I had to, I, it's one of the few films I own digitally because uh, it is on DVD and I have it on DVD, but my DVDs are in a place where I can't even get to them. Uh, but it, it doesn't have any release on Blu-ray or anything yet. Where, whereas uh, Last Picture Show, of course, has a like Criterion collection. Criterion, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's for the longest time, uh, you know, I don't want to, I hate, <laughs> I have a tendency for hyperbole anyways, but. We both do. That's why we podcast. That's right. <laughs> that and we're middle-aged white guys, so you just kind of exactly it's, it comes with the yeah. We, yeah le- I think legally we're obligated. <laughs> um, but the first time I saw the Last Picture Show, I was like, "That's going to be in the top five best top five best movies I've ever seen." Um, and that's before I lived in Texas. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, it's I know if people have compared it to Citizen Kane. Like, there's some. I, I mean, I've heard that there's some thematic similarities i would have to you know read more into it but that's obviously in the annals of film history like that's kind of a lofty statement i think it was just the black and white and it was wells who suggested the black and white too peter went to him for advice and said uh how do i get the film to look this way he wanted it to look sharp and and like they were flat and uh orson wells told him there's only one way to do it and that's in black and white he also went on record as saying uh, this is an actor's movie, and uh, so it has to be in black and white. And Bogdanovich asked, well, why does it have to be in black and white? He's like, name one great performance that isn't in black and white, and Bogdanovich couldn't do it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I think if we gave it uh, half a second thought, we probably could, but not if Orson of Welles was the one asking. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Obviously, especially now, there's been you know decades and decades of brilliant movies in color. But at the time, you know, uh, Bogdanovich... Uh, couldn't come up with an answer, but I will say it's, I can't find fault with what Orson Welles' statement because, I mean, the acting in the movie is fantastic. In fact, um, it's uh, some of the best acting I've ever seen. 100%. In fact, there's two scenes, uh, which I, again was for two of the supporting ca- actors who I believe they both won. Yeah, it, it won uh, supporting actor and actress. Actress, and rightfully so, well deserved. But yeah, before I pontificate about it, um, you know, because I kind of went off and started the discussion on targets. Why don't you tell me your thoughts on? <laughs> uh, well, this was, um, I think it was the first Bogdanovich film I ever saw. It was, it, it, yeah. It may have been targets. It, it was around the same time. Like one led me to the other, you know. But uh, God, you've got. Let's see. This this is just a almost a, kind of a partial cast list. You got Sybil Shepherd. Ben Johnson, who was the best supporting actor winner that year. Cloris Leachman was the best uh, supporting actress that year. Uh, Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, Randy Quaid, Ellen Burstyn, Eileen Brennan, Sam Bottoms, and Clue Gulliger, who uh, took me a while to even realize that that was Clue Gulliger. Like, I'd been a fan of other stuff starring him without realizing, oh, he was the asshole in Last Picture Show. Oh, man, that scene... uh... When he tells her to get out of the car, that's I've never. You want to what a scumbag. Anyways, <laughs> great, but great acting, great acting. So exactly, I mean, he's fantastic in it, which is why I mean I like the actor so much. Uh, but I hate him in that movie because he's just yeah. so greasy and such gross. a prick. Yeah, he's, he's having an affair with uh, Sybil Shepherd's mother, played by Ellen Burstyn, 
And then when she's out one night, he comes in looking for her and she's not home. So he sleeps with her daughter. It's all quote unquote consensual, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's hard because, you know, Civil Shepard's character is, I think, the most complex in the movie. Because, yeah. And, you know, she, she makes a lot of stupid decisions and she's very selfish and, She's also misguided by her mother. Her exactly. Mother and and almost society. Like, yeah, yeah. But she's trying to, like, find a man who's going to take care of her. She's also trying to, like, take that next step into adulthood and womanhood. And she's trying to, you know, she's just trying to find herself. And she's tr- basically trying to ensnare a man. And she goes with this older man who's, you know, uh, has this sort of sexual power and, you know, he's very, this kind of like bad boy guy who works for her father. So she's sort of, she's sort of the one that's sort of, she's almost like at the beginning when they, you know, she's home and he comes over to see his, see her dad. And she's sort of like, it's like a Lolita type of scenario where she's sort of putting out the energy, but then realizes what a mistake it was. Cause I think she, she's still a young girl. She doesn't really know what she wants. And she also doesn't know how the world works and, but it's a, I mean, but it's a brilliant scene and, you know, it's powerful scene and the acting is really good, but you know, you hate Clue Gallagher cause he's so cold to her, cold to her after he basically, you know, sleeps with her in the fucking the uh, pool hall. Uh, but yeah, it's a powerful scene and Clue, Clue Gallagher is great in it, but he's fucking despicable and you want to murder him. So. And, and then she goes from him to uh, Jeff Bridges, who's her boyfriend throughout the whole yeah. thing, but she's, yeah. she's been told by her mother. I can't remember the exact advice, but it it's along the lines of like, maybe you shouldn't lose your virginity to that idiot, lose your virginity to someone else. And then you'll uh, it, it's, it's, it's weird. It's complicated. It's yeah, well, like, so it's cause like she knows she's afraid that because they live in this fucking super small work, like, you know, dead in town. town. Yeah. yeah, that if she sleeps with Jeff Bridges' character, and she knows Jeff Bridges' character's not going anywhere in life. She's, you know, he's he's just another guy that's going to, you know, high school kid that's never going to move away or do anything in this town. So her mother is afraid that she's going to make the same mistakes that she made and that if she sleeps with him, he's going to marry him and it's her life will be essentially over. And, you know, as unfair as that is to poor Jeff Bridges' character, she's coming at a place of her own personal experience and stuff. And again, it's the film is very layered. There's every character, there's more to it. And, you know, even a lot of the adult characters, a lot of things are inferred and nobody in the movie is a hundred percent good. And nobody in the movie is a hundred percent bad. They're just human beings and they're all trying to find their way. And it's, there's some, I mean, it's heartbreakingly sad in lots of ways, but it's like, there's a real genuine honesty and stuff to it. And just about, especially for the, the Jeff Bridges character and his and his friends. I don't, I don't know the actor's names who Tim bottoms. Yeah. Thank you. You know, like they're just these young guys stuck in a small Texas town, you know, in between world war two and the Korean, the Korean war. And they're just, you know, they've got, they're trying to find out what life has in store for them and about getting a girlfriend. And, you know, it's anyways, it's, I could go off on this movie, but it might be like the, the, I can't think of anything earlier than this. It might be the first movie where like the real hook of it is, a bunch of people trying to lose their virginity yeah but but it's like imagine american pie and then suck all of the joy and life out of it exactly <laughs> but well, it's so much better and all the oh color my out of it um and, and, and you know take american pie and cast jeff bridges and fucking tim bottoms 
<laughs> well, <laughs> the, I think it's an amazing one of the, cast. <laughs> but one of the, I mean, and, you know, she's, you know, she won the, uh, she's the best supporting actress winner that, you know, we mentioned Cloris earlier. Leachman, but yeah. Cloris Leachman's character is this middle-aged lady who's, like, in this, like, kind of loveless, you know, she's just this sad, lonely old lady. She, her, her husband is the... She's not uh, even that old. She, no, well, that's the thing is, she's, she's like younger Irish. than me and... Yeah. yeah, she's younger than us. Yeah, but, you know, but she's the old, like, you know, she, you know, she's sleeping with Tim Bottom's character. Um, who's a teenager. Who's a teenager, a high school kid. Um, But the whole thing there is that, you know, her husband is the local coach and you know, he basically tells this kid to, hey, you take my wife to this doctor's appointment because I got stuff I got to do. And, you know, the, the big game is coming up and blah, blah, blah. I can't do it. So he ends up, you know, basically she says like she's like she wants him to she's just lonely. She's a lonely lady. Her husband doesn't have any time for her. And they basically start this illicit affair. Her this 40 year old woman in this high school kid. But it's the loneliest, saddest there's just it's heartbreaking like it, it brings her joy at first because it's, oh yeah it's, and and then to see that joy taken away not by cruelty necessarily but just by kind of the casual the casualness yeah. of of uh timothy bottom's character not understanding how much she is invested in this yes um there's a scene where, where she repaints her room because it's the color that he likes and she's sitting there waiting for him to show up and meanwhile Jeff Bridges has broken up with Sybil Shepherd, and now Sybil Shepherd's paying attention to Timothy Bottoms. And so Timothy Bottoms is now completely ignoring Cloris Leachman. Yep. And just something as simple as she painted the room his color um, and is so excited to show him. And she shows her crying in the room, knowing that he's not coming. It, it's, I, I, and I don't think there's, there's so much drama in this movie. That's not even giving anything away. Um, I will say Cloris Leachman had an interesting um, statement on it. She said, and, and there's evidence of this kind of within the coach's character on screen. Um, the, the coach, you know, is the, the typical, you know, smack the athletes on the ass kind of, uh, you know, coach. Cloris Leachman read that and played it as her husband was in the closet. And that's why he has no interest in her. That's why she's so alone. And, and so, you know, to her, that washed her character and made her pure again in the sense that she's she's not having a dishonest affair she's having an affair to help this guy hide who he really is from the rest of town interesting i've never heard that but that's and not that he isn't an asshole either but you know she everybody's playing their quote-unquote part in this town and then you got sam the lion who's uh kind of the father figure of the town played by ben johnson who uh, you know, is the one that everyone goes to for advice and is also the one that scolds people. At one point, uh, he gets mad at everybody, tells them they can't come into his pool hall anymore. And it really is like these guys are like on restriction from going downtown. You know, it's like they've been put on a timeout. They're like deeply sad because that's all this town has is the yep. movie theater and the pool hall and the diner. Okay. Yep. And they're all owned by Sam the Lion. So, and, and the thing is, I just have to talk about this scene. There's a sequence when, you know, basically after he sort of reconciles with them, because basically, and this is important, and I'm blanking on the kid's name. Is it Eddie? Um, the, which kid? The kid. So there's a kid in the thing who sort of, ha he's uh, mentally 
he's got like learning disabilities. He's Sonny's brother. Yeah. Tim yeah. Bottoms brother. Who's actually played by his real life brother, Sam Bottoms. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. But basically he's this kid that like, you know, he had some, you know, he's mentally handicapped. He has some learning disabilities or whatever. And he's sort of the butt of the joke and like people sort of mess with him, but they basically try to get him to sleep with a prostitute. It goes really poorly. Um, the prostitute slaps him um, because he, finishes in two seconds yeah he's exactly and so he come they come back to the diner and you know um it's not even his son but he's like almost like a surrogate father figure to him um basically like sonny's parents and and uh i i don't know why i can't remember the brother's name but sam bottoms their, their parents do live in the town but they don't live with their parents they never explain that yeah exactly i was gonna say i don't know if i missed something there but it's explained in like a two sentence thing. And his father does show up at the dance. Exactly. At one point, and, 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 and it's, it's the most awkward. awkward. Sort of, hey, yep. son, how you been? You know, and then you know, see you later. Uh, so, so Sam, the lion really is kind of their father, father figure. Yeah. Yes. 100%. And, you know, but there's a scene where after he basically takes the boys fishing, I think. Yeah. Um, and he basically has this whole monologue about how, you know, he he has this love in his life. And it's one of the most fucking power, like, just, he has a line about, isn't, you know, isn't that, you know, isn't that fool? I forget the actual wording, but I mean, just, I'm not going to go into the scene itself. But there's a scene where I remember the first time I watched it, I got, like, chills just because it felt so like the wisdom of Solomon. It just felt so honest and real. And it was just exactly. so exactly you'll, you'll know it when you see it without us telling you the content 100%. It because it's just immediately like, Oh my God, this shot, this location, this everything about it. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And, and, and uh, Bogdanovich says it was a moment that, uh, you know, the movie God smiled on him because if you watch Ben Johnson's face while he's um, describing the love of his life, how they used to go skinny dipping. Uh, she, she, she got him to skinny dip in that crick. And um, and that's what he was saying was, can you imagine how ridiculous that is, you know? Uh, but the sun actually came out from the clouds and lights him while he's talking about this lost love. And it's, talk about happy accidents. That's just one of those great moments of film. That The sun coming out probably won Ben Johnson the Oscar. <laughs> well, that and the fact that he's brilliant. <laughs> and one thing that I do love is that and I'm sure you, you know. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to do some of my homework too at this point. But uh, Ben Johnson uh, didn't want to do the movie. Turned Bogdanovich down like 13 times. Yeah. And finally, he's a. And he was just like, "There's just too many words." So Bogdanovich, who was friends with Ford, called him up and be like, "Hey, John Ben Johnson." Ford, you mean. I mean, yeah, John Ford. What did I say? You just said Ford. Oh, John Ford. He called called him up and said, like, you know, he, he doesn't want to do the movie. And, you know, he's like, ah, he always says that. Uh, so I guess he, he called him and was like, you know, what's wrong with you? Don't you want to make, you know, do you want to play second fiddle to John Wayne the rest of your career? Um, so anyways, Ben Johnson called Peter Bogdanovich back and he's like, you sent the old man after me. <laughs> I love that. I know. So good. But, but he still didn't want to do it. And I guess he just, Bogdanovich just kept breaking him down. So finally he just agreed to do it without even like kind of saying he would do it. But it's just insane to think that he almost didn't do the movie. And then, you know, in that point too, he was, you know, Bogdanovich told him like, you, this, you will win an Oscar for this. This is, will, you know, for guys his age who'd been in Hollywood or been in acting for so long. And 
he probably thought that was something that was well past his, you know, out, outside of his life anymore. Yeah. And Bogdanovich knew, like, no, man, this role can fucking win you an Oscar. And he was right. And he did. Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we move on from uh, Last Picture Show, I, I, I feel like I'm contractually obligated to ask if you've seen Texasville. I, you know, I, I, when I was looking up his filmography, the title sounded. If you'd asked me if I seen Texasville, I would say, "Oh, it sounds familiar." But then I looked up the movie. I was like, "I definitely have not seen this movie." <laughs> you probably saw the previews for it because we were. Let's see, I think I was about ooh, eleven or so when it came out. Um, eleven, twelve. It came out the same year as T two. So you know that 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 tends to be like a marker in my head, <laughs> right? Um, and. Uh, it was a sequel to to the last picture show, and I, I I fell on the sword for the both of us and made myself watch Texas Phil. It's actually rather hard to find, um, but I had it on DVR from a long time ago, from like two Februarys ago. I, I was like watching. I'm like, holy shit, this might have been recorded on the same day as today, like two years ago, <laughs> and I never watched it because I it has a reputation, and and it's nowhere near as good, um, but. It does have some moments. Um, no Bogdanovich movie is really completely bad in my mind. I know that some people will disagree with me on that, but most Bogdanovich has at least something to it. And Texasville has something to it. it. It's a little disappointing to see where he, where some of the characters were taken. It wasn't Bogdanovich doing it though. It was, uh, the original book for Last Picture Show was written by Larry McMurtry. Exactly. Famously also went on to do Lonesome Dove and Brokeback Mountain. And um, McMurtry, I guess, had turned the Jeff Bridges character, uh, Dwayne, into a lead character in like another, I think it was another two or three of his later novels. And so this was the second one. And Bogdanovich made it straight off of the book. And he, he just shouldn't have. There was no call for it. Um, I don't know if the book is as bad as the movie. But the idea of like all these kids and um, like all these teenagers and, and all these sort of like just barely reaching middle-aged adults in last picture show and and being so really kind of obsessed with sex on a certain level but in a time when like they're basically living like they're watching the tumbleweeds literally yeah that all seemed to ring true to me and then having the same sort of thing in texasville where now texasville takes place in the 80s and Dwayne has has uh started his own oil company He's deeply in debt and Sybil Shepherd's character comes back to town. And that's really, you know, that's the fireworks and blah, 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 blah. But they make the characters still be sex obsessed. And the town has actually grown since the last picture show. And it seems like there's other stuff to do. And so now it just kind of seems more skeevy. Yeah. And the thing is the way I always read it and why I think the sexuality and the sexuality, especially for the time was like, uh, nuts. Well, yeah, it was kind of scandalous, actually. Like, yeah. But to me, the sexuality part of it was about maturely. It was about, uh, like you said, which you point out brilliantly, is that again, part of it's just boredom. Like, there's nothing else to do in this town. But it's also about finding yourself, and that's that next stage. These are high school kids who are about to go off to truly be adults, and part of being an adult is sowing those seeds or fi- like, you know. And for Civil Shepherds, it's, it's not just about sex. For her, sex is leading to security, to a man that will take care of her, to her making her mom happy. You know, for the boys, it's about becoming men and, you know, sort of 
you know, these these are two kids that get made fun of constantly by the men in the town because their football team sucks. And like, you know, when you boys gotta learn how to tackle, like that's a running gag the whole yeah, time. Exactly. And you can tell the boys have no interest in in, in it. And, you know, it's about finding yourself. And that's why I think this, it's not just like, oh, let's get laid for the sake of getting laid. There's a point to it. It's about that's what separates it from being an American pie or a poor exactly. One hundred percent. And I think even with Cloris Leachman's character sort of cements that because she's on the other end of it now. She knows the adventure, the excitement of her life is gone. She's in this like loveless marriage. The sexual part of it isn't even the sex part of it. It's she starts crying the first time that she has sex with the with um is it Eddie? Dwayne and Eddie, right? Or no, is that No, you just Sunny. Sunny, thank you, Sunny. Um she's she starts crying the first time she sleeps with Sunny. I thought Sonny was the name of the kid with the de- the mental. No, Sonny is Tim Bottoms, and then uh... okay. Well, either when she has, when she sleeps with Tim Bottoms' character, the first time she cries, and it's for her, it's about connection. It's about feeling like a human being again. It's about even though she's middle aged, which again she's younger than me, which is makes me so sad. But <laughs> when <laughs> she finds that she realizes that life can still have surprises or new newness and. It's not just about getting laid by some young kid. Like, it, there's so much more to it. While I'm not speaking about Cloris Leachman, before we move on, the movie ends in one of my favorite scenes. And I think it's the scene that also won Cloris Leachman the Oscar because it's this whole time she's just taken so much shit and she's like, she's been so emotionally vulnerable and like sort of dismissed and not really valued, you know, by the Sonny character. And, you know, it's this, it's this, again, people know Cloris Leachman from like, you know, as a comedian and a you know, great comedian, she was a great comedian, but man, she acts her ass off in this and she breaks my heart. But the last scene is phenomenal. It's very raw and real and is very emotionally, you know, vulnerable. That's the scene that won her the Oscar. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Exactly. So, but you know, Bogdanovich was like, I don't, we, we're going to just, we're not going to do any rehearsals on this. I don't want to see you do this. And she really wanted to do it. She didn't understand why. And I guess, you know, he had said that, um, I forget which great, or maybe it was Orson Welles had said, you know, when you, for a lot of actors, the first time you do it for, for your director, because your director is the really only audience that actors in film have. That's their audience as the director. The first time they do it, it has this rawness and this realness and this you know, honesty. But then actors being actors, every time they do it after that, they're trying to either get back to that place or improve on it. And they lose some sort of spontaneity and some realness. So that was the first time Bogdanovich had ever seen her do it. Boom, nailed it. And she wanted to refilm it. She's like, I can do better. And he's like, no, you can't. That's, we're sticking with that. And if you see it, it has it. She's literally ch- shaking in one point. And you're like, is that like, is she so in the moment? Or is that adrenaline? And But it's just, it's fucking brilliant. It's, I think that's why when you said, let's do Bogdanovich. First thing I thought about was obviously last picture show. And I knew at one point when like kind of going into his work, I'm like, I'd heard that he's definitely front loaded at the beginning of his career and that, he sort of, you know, shot his load with Last Picture Show and everything subsequently wasn't as good. But it's such a, I, I mean, I literally put it up there with, you know, like a face in the crowd and, you know, uh, Citizen Kane is these one of the greatest American movies ever made. And, you know, the last time I saw it, which was, I don't know, I forget. When did we first get the Criterion Channel? Like uh, a year ago, whatever. The last time I saw it, I was still just as enamored with it as the first time I saw it. And it's a movie that never gets old and, yeah, it's you know, two and um, a half hours, and I will sit there. Like, if it's on, I will watch it from whatever point it's one, on. And, like, yeah, I don't care how long it is. It, it's and, just, 
it, you feel, there's a little bit of an almost voyeur feel to it. It feels like I yes. am looking through the window of these people. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I, I could go plot point by plot point because there's a lot of interesting things and a lot of sadness and spoiler. I mean, you, you know, those movies <laughs> 50-something years old, but the, the kid with the mental disabilities, Sonny's brother, um, he dies. And his death is so... Like, the people in town hate him just because he has learning disabilities. At one point... He's different. He's just different, yeah. And at one point in the movie, like, he he basically just takes this little girl for a ride. And they don't really go into it a lot. But, you know, like, the mom is like... That is, like, molesting my daughter, oh, no, even though there's... That's a different character. That was one of his schoolmates who does that. Oh, was it? Yeah, it's not his little brother who does that. His little brother's the one that's always, like, sweeping in the middle of the street in a dust storm. That's right. That's know? right. Okay, yeah, yeah. But oh, it's, another, it's another kid at school that, that has a hard time connecting with girls who ends up kidnapping a girl, and he never goes through with it, but he's arrested. Um, yeah. And, and it's, a, it's just a part of the sorrow of this town. And But, yeah, anyways, the, his, his brother dies, and the town is like, well, he was an idiot. Like... It just they yeah. don't give a shit, and it's they don't so... have him to kick around anymore. And and you know he was the he was the butt of the jokes, anyways. He was the guy that that uh you know they thought it would be a gas to go get him a hooker. You know, yeah, obviously wasn't ready for that step no. in his life. God, I could have sworn that was the same character. Wow, well, maybe I need to re- rewatch it again. But, <laughs> but yeah, anyways, but it's just so the whole movie is heartbreaking. But so first off, we didn't even really mention outside of talking about like the luck luckiness of the sun disappearing and reappearing behind clouds but the fucking movie i mean it's beautiful to look at there i mean it's black and white in this desolate texas town but it's fucking it has its own beauty which is a lot like a movie we'll talk about in a second um actually but um well let me it's just a great movie before we move on i do i have two things i want to say about um absolutely last picture for one thing and this was true of targets too i just uh it seems more prominent in last picture show uh the first of like many like Bogdanovich isms uh which really became popular for other people to use as well all the music comes from the cars and the radios and people's homes yes there's no score to targets or last picture show or to most of Bogdanovich's movies certainly none of the the 70s stuff up until he does a musical which we may or may not get into um (laughs) but uh yeah, all the music comes from the radios and, and from the cars and, and it's all Hank Williams and, and mm-hmm. Roy Acuff and yep. and Tony Bennett covering Hank Williams, Williams. at one point because he wanted yep. to show that the, the rich people listen to a different music than, than the uh, poor people in town. People. And uh, within like a year or two, uh, George Lucas completely ripped it off and used it in American Graffiti. In graffiti, yep. Well, it's funny though that, because I was about to say it is very interesting the fact that like you said it's it's all coming from sources within the movie it's not just like music being played over the what you're seeing it's literally coming from the scene but the fucking it's literally almost like non-stop hank williams and i love it because the first time i saw it i didn't know that and i'm a big hank williams fan and i was like dude the soundtrack is amazing and like i said even like you said Roy cuff and a lot of 50s you know country which is sort of one of my weird one of many little weird obsessions but um yeah you and i share that in common for sure but yeah just the the soundtrack the quote-unquote soundtrack is incredible um i mean again i i will admit that i haven't seen probably the majority of his films um which i didn't really realize that until recently but i can say unequivocally it is easily his best movies it's one of the it's just a 
a brilliant film top to bottom, you know, like based off of a novel, but I think everything that really stands out from it was the choices that Bogdanovich made, but great movie, great cast. Um, Sybil Shepard, uh, who's very, uh, you know, very complex and it's just a great performance. She's also very, very cute in the movie. Um, he fell head over heels in love with her making that movie, yes, which, which I is, totally understand. It destroyed his his marriage, uh, but it didn't destroy it right away, which is kind of weird. But I think he justified it as um, you know what what filmmaker doesn't fall in love with his leading lady or some sort lady. of like bullshit like that. You know, it's, yeah. there's a lot of that kind of talk going around. It and it, yeah, we we all. I don't know. I don't want to speak ill of the dead, and, and certainly uh, Sybil loved him to. To this day, she's still like uh, you know, they were good, good, good friends. Yeah. So it didn't hurt Sybil in any way. It did hurt his his ex wife though. Do you know who Bogdanovich was gonna cast in the Sunny role? Uh, a complete unknown at the time. I don't. John Ritter. He really wanted John Ritter to play the Timothy Bottoms role. I'm gonna be honest. I, I I'm that kind of breaks my heart. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, okay, I love Tim Bottoms in that movie. Yeah, he's great. Fantastic but, in it. But, but John fucking... That is maybe one of the greatest what-ifs we've ever talked about. Speaking of somebody who literally... Jack Tripper was the first <laughs> fictional character as a kid that I... Like, I was like, even more than the Fonz. I just... Something about Jack Tripper, and then to just know what a great human being he was... And that he had this sort of, and I don't know, it was, we're not, this is a John Ritter podcast, but we should do one soon. I love we John should. Ritter. I would like to you do know, John Ritter. And, and he's, he's in a couple of uh, Bogdanovich movies later. But uh, yeah, uh, Last Picture Show escaped him, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on the way you look at it. But it certainly would have been an interesting uh, parallel universe to visit and see John Ritter in that movie. Absolutely. And, interesting. That's a good fact. I had no idea. But uh I thought you would find that interesting. I wanted to make sure I got that in because that's one of those things that like uh, two hours from now, I might've gone, oh, I meant to mention John Ritter. Um, but before- So you have editing power. So you could have just put it in and I could listen to it, like, what? I don't remember that conversation. But I wouldn't have gotten your reaction. That's that's the key. True. But to, uh, to move it on, just uh, before we make this too much about Last Picture Show uh, or Texasville, before Last Picture Show even comes out, so really before Bogdanovich is even like the hot shit of Hollywood, um, just based on the reputation that best that Last Picture Show was starting to get before its release, uh, he was suddenly in demand with with some of the bigger actors of the time who wanted to work with him. And one of those was Barbara Streisand and just kept on like, I want to do something with you. What are we going to do? And so that ended up becoming uh, his next film, What's Up Doc, which he was shooting while last picture show was like being nominated for all the Oscars and everything. Uh, so it's weird actually to think of him working on that and not being, you know, quote unquote, Peter Bogdanovich yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, have you ever seen what's up doc? No, I, I it was what we, uh, a little bit of a, you know, inside baseball sort of thing. Um, I was going to try to watch it before we record this. I just didn't have the time given the time I had, I was like, well, let me watch a different film, but you know, I like Barbara Streisand. I think Barbara Streisand's film work in this period was all, I mean, she was always good. And I like the sort of source material kind of comedy. Like, I'm going to watch, here's what we'll do. I will watch it between the next time we record and I will give you my opinion 
on the next episode. All right. You know, the beginning of it, just to see. Because I do want to watch it. And knowing, like, it's between this, like, four-film chunk, I was like, I do want to see it. So, it, so I have nothing to add to this portion. Because the only <laughs> thing I know about it is the two-minute trailer I watched. Well, it's a lot of fun. It's a it's a slapstick comedy, or a, not a slapstick. I mean, it's a screwball comedy. There's a difference. Screwball slapstick, slapstick's more like Three Stooges. Screwball's yes. more like uh, Hepburn and Cary Grant. Um, exactly. So, and this was actually in the style of Howard Hawks. Um, and it stars uh, Ryan O'Neill and, uh, as as he said, Barbara Streisand. Madeline Kahn makes her film premiere in this. And uh, Kenneth Mars and Austin Pendleton, who's just like a that guy actor that I really love, who was also a semi-regular at the Film Forum when I used to work there. Um, so I wanted to make sure I, I shouted out Austin Pendleton because he's in a lot of stuff and he never gets mentioned. I, I won't get too much into it because it's not a full discussion yet. There's a couple of things I definitely want to talk to you about. Um, but I will point out, just because I don't know if it'll come up the next time we talk about it, it was the first American film to give credits to the stunt people in the movie, which I did not know. I only found this out researching this. I always thought stunt people got a, a credit. When I, I know a lot of movies used to end with just the end or yes. covering the cast again. But as soon as credits started to become a crawl of, of names at the end of the movie, I always thought stunt people were part of that. Apparently not. Peter Bogdanovich uh, got that ball rolling. And considering how much he started to work with Burt Reynolds later on, I actually wonder if this was partly how Burt Reynolds, how Peter Bogdanovich got on Burt Reynolds' radar because Reynolds was close friends with his stunt people yep. and, and probably really appreciated that someone was finally giving them credit. But yeah, I thought that was a kind of a cool little fun fact. But we'll get into the ins and outs of it in a, at another time. Um, oh, one more thing. I, I will say Barbara Streisand is, this is a heads up. She's pretty much literally playing a female Bugs Bunny. Like that's why it's called What's Up Doc. What's Up Doc. She's even eating a carrot at one point as if, you know, Bogdanovich couldn't make it any clearer. Um, but she just pops up to like completely ruin Ryan O'Neill's life. And Ryan O'Neill's playing this nebbish sort of nerd, which is not, it's against type for a Ryan O'Neill type, but it's inspired by Cary Grant. And it was against type for a Cary Grant type. Cary Grant. In the 30s. So it actually works quite well. But uh, yeah, imagine like a 1930s era Cary Grant, uh, you know, like bringing up baby era Cary Grant uh, having his life completely turned upside down by Bugs Bunny. And <laughs> you'll get kind of an idea of what you got in store. Uh, it's also got a really great San Francisco car chase. And because you, you're in Texas now, but you were, you're my San Francisco guy too. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, you lived um, in San Francisco for several what years. A weird, what a weird dichotomy that is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> from experience, I will tell you. But uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is like, if you see the train, if you see anything from it, you can totally guess the vibe right away. But the, when I first saw it, I was like, why is this? I mean, I, it, there can be no other source for what's up, Doc, than Bugs Bunny. So that's why I was so curious. But, yeah, you know, I keep on waiting sense. for her to go, nah, ain't I a stinker? Because, I mean, that's exactly. what she's doing to him. She's just being a stinker in this guy's life. <laughs> and, and there's, you know, she, there's a love story in there, too. So it, it's it's not completely un, you know, she's not completely destroying his life. She's just changing it in ways that he didn't. Exactly. It, it's which is what all yeah exactly the wild untamed female comes in the wacky female and oh the straight lace guy and his whole life yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. we yeah, that movie's been made a few times so. yeah uh, there is a uh, funny scene at the end though um, and this is not a spoiler it's just a, a line delivery but uh, at one point. Um, 
towards the end, Barbara Streisand says to Ryan O'Neill, love means never having to say you're sorry, which was the, famously the tagline for the movie Love Story that Ryan O'Neill had just become a major movie star over. And so O'Neill replies, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, which it is, because the uh, yeah. first time I ever heard love means never having to say you're sorry, I, I think I was even, I was a little kid. I was like 10 years old and I was like, that's not true. That's bullshit. <laughs> Somebody, yes, exactly. Yeah. My dad says sorry to my mom all the time. All the time, exactly. <laughs> now, to, to move it on then, uh, we'll, we'll come back to What's Up Doc another time. But did you get a chance to see Paper Moon? That was the next one in Bogdanovich. I did. And I fucking loved it. I knew I was you would. So... I knew you would. God damn good. It's going to be a movie now I probably revisit even pretty soon. Yeah, I'm dying to show it to my 13-year-old daughter, uh, stepdaughter. I think she would love it. It is a movie that works on so many levels. It's funny. It's sad. It's dramatic. It's exciting. It goes back to funny. I mean, it goes back to funny a lot. It's just, it's so good. Uh, Black and white again. Uh, again, Ryan, Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill, which was, I, I think, her very first acting gig, and she yes. won the youngest person to win an Academy Award. Um, Still to this day, that record yeah. holds. And it, you know, you hear that, and you're like, ugh, fucking kid actors, but she's so good in it. She's so genuinely believable and real, and like, it's she's a real in a way that kid actors, there have been brilliant kid actors, of course. I mean, you know, there's tons, but there's always this actorly thing to when, like when kids are really good, there's still an actorly thing, but there's a weird honesty to Tatum O'Neill in, in this movie specifically, where you're like, you forget that it's a little kid acting and she just yeah. feels like a real character and it's brilliant. And Ryan O'Neill's fantastic. And it is a sort of low life con man guy. And I literally, I put on as I was like working and I was like literally multitasking. I was like, put it, put it on and I was going to go eat. And then I realized 50 minutes had passed, almost an hour had passed. I hadn't gotten anything to eat. I'd stopped. And I was just, it, it, there's, it's almost like a Charlie Chaplin movie in a weird way. Not, not in like an overt way, but no, in a sort of, in a spirit. There's a trampiness to it though. Like, yeah, but exactly. There's like this like not, sort not of a, like. Not a harlot tramp. I like. No, uh, a, a, yeah. But a it's Chaplin like. Chaplin tramp, yes. I think there's a thematic thing of like this, because, you know, Chaplin always played this like the tramp wasn't like you know he was kind of an asshole and like a little bit of a of a uh, he's always like trying to pull some something but there's a I don't know I can't explain he was, it, but, he was always anti-establishment and I think yeah. that's kind of what what comes through with these characters too they're they're just trying to get by during the Great Depression do whatever they can and, to get by exactly and but Ryan Ryan O'Neill is great in it there's a lot of like you know uh, it's, it's strangely vulgar for a movie of the time like. Um, I think that's the black and white messing with your head. No, I mean, like she calls the like she calls the bathroom the shit house and the shit like <laughs> like she you know just she smokes cigarettes. Through, she smokes know. cigarettes, which by the way I heard were made of uh, it was not tobacco it was lettuce in those cigarettes and she hated them and they made her gag. Oh, so I, I always wondered, um, yeah. but yeah, it's, I mean, it's the movie's phenomenal. Mal and Khan is great in it with, for the part she's in. Uh, there's an interest, some interesting stories there, you know, that I, I uh, read about um, when in filming it and stuff. But it's a movie that I'd always heard of. I, you know, I I could picture the the you know movie poster in my head. Just a movie I'd never gotten around to. You know, it was like 
I don't know if I maybe heard it was bad or maybe it was like a. I don't know. I don't know if it had some connotation in my head that I, I can't really describe. But it's a movie I knew I'd, I'd get around to someday. And man, now I'm kicking myself in the ass for not have watching it sooner. I will probably end up buying it within the next <laughs> short while. Uh, it is a movie that, well, maybe not as good as last picture show that's not necessarily even a criticism because last picture show is just that good but it's it's in that same ballpark it's yeah well shot again it's black and white it's a period piece although it's even earlier it's like what does it mean 68 69 last picture show uh last picture show is 71 71 so it's going back about 20 years ish and this one's going back even further to the 30s but i don't know just it's it's fantastic. It, it is a great movie. Ryan O'Neill is fucking great in it. Um, you know, I, whenever anybody says Ryan O'Neill, I always think of Love Story. Just he's that guy in the Love Story. And Love Story is a great movie. I I have no problem with that movie. Yeah, I have no movie. problem with it except yeah. for the tagline. Yeah, exactly. Um, but <laughs> but it's know, sappy, I, I, and we all know it's sappy. It's made to very be sappy. sappy. Yeah, one hundred percent. It serves um, its purpose. But someone you who know, doesn't just, like Love Story just doesn't like love stories. To me, like, he's almost like Robert Redford. There's like a Robert Redford quality when Robert Redford plays those sort of like... I can see that kind of barefoot in the park era Redford. Yeah. And I think uh, he's just really good in it. But again, Tatum O'Neill sort of steals every scene she's in. And dude, the the ending is fantastic. Like, it just... uh, What a good movie, man. I'm so glad you recommended it to me or, you know, whatever. You you sort of pointed me in that direction. But uh, yeah, it's it blew me away. And it's sort of gave me a little more faith in Bogdanovich as being like, was he like, was he lucky? Did he just like sort of luck <laughs> out? But no, he was a fucking fin- fantastic filmmaker at one point. And, you know, um, yeah, great movie. Fantastic. Right. And I don't think we've gone into any of the plot here. Um, essentially what's yeah. happening. It's based on a book called Addie Prey, which um, Bogdanovich hated the title and he went to the uh, producer and said, I really want to change the title. Uh, there was a song that came out around that same time called Paper Moon. I want to call it Paper Moon. And the, and he's like, you can't do that because uh, the novel sold big and people won't know it's the novel. And he says, well, how many copies did Addie Prey sell? And he, uh, the producer said uh, about 100,000 copies. And he goes, OK, so 100,000 people show up to see your movie. How big a hit do you have? He's like, OK, OK, you can change it to Paper Moon. So... <laughs> Well, I think actually, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the director said no, or the producer was like, no, I don't care. Like, we're still calling it Eddie. And I guess he asked uh, Orson, you know, if I'm, he asked Orson Welles, and Orson Welles was like, dude, if that's a fantastic, he's like, you don't need to make the movie if the title's that good. Yeah. And so I guess he went back and he said, then they the re- movie, just released the title. I title, exactly. Uh, um, but oh. it's a fantastic story about, um, well, it starts off at this funeral. And it's uh, the mother of, of little Addie, played by uh, Tatum O'Neill. And, uh, you know, it, it's clearly like the Midwest. There's, there's only like three people in attendance. Uh, very, look, looks like a, could have been the town that Last Picture Show took place in practically. Yeah. I mean, it just looks like there's nobody there. And Ryan O'Neill pulls up in his jalopy with car making all sorts of sound and whatever and interrupting the whole service. And he comes up and, and he steals flowers from one of the other graves and takes it to this grave <laughs> which which is fantastic because right from the start it tells you everything you need to know about this guy exactly it, which is why i bring it up now like it's just painting such a great picture and he goes and he stands next to these people at this grave site 
and people look at him and then they look at Addie and then they look at him and then they look at Addie and they're like, okay, this is Addie's father, clearly. And so they don't have any place to put Addie. They don't know what to do with her. Um, they're going to try to send her off to her aunt or her cousin or some, some other relative, um, but they have no way to get her there. And so, so they, uh, they ask Ryan O'Neill or rather kind of trick him or, or con him even into giving her a ride. And uh, the, the way they look at each other, there's this constant sort of like, is, are we related? Are you my father? He says, no. He flat out says, no, I'm not your father, but they keep he wants out, nothing to do with yeah. this, yeah. <laughs> but we've got the same jawline. So lots of people have the same jawline and there's <laughs> just something so fun about this because obviously Tatum O'Neill and Ryan O'Neill are father and father. And it's never said in the movie for sure. And, and yep. I love that Bogdanovich never quote unquote answers that. I think I've made air never confirms this it. more than normal, but uh, <laughs> what's that? So I think I've done air quotes in this episode more than I normally do. But yeah, he, he never actually gives you the full answer as to whether they are really related. But uh, the first thing he wants to do is he he buys her a, a t- oh no, first he goes and he cashes out on her um, tragedy. He goes to the, the brother of the guy who was the drunk driver that killed her mother, gets $200 out of him, uses it to buy himself a new car and her a train ticket to this relative. So Which I like to just think about, ponder that two hundred dollars could buy you a new car and a cross country <laughs> fucking train ticket. And he still had change because he takes exactly to go get a uh, what he calls a Coney Island. Um, <laughs> a hot dog. Um, yeah, it's a hot dog. Uh, but while they're eating the Coney Islands, what what it, what it basically comes down to is you know he's he's going to send her off to to this relative, and she says you're not going to stay with me? Then I want my $200. He's like, well, I don't have your $200. I just spent it on the car and the plane ticket and I gave you $20 and now I bought you a Coney Island. So shut up. And she's like, I want my $200. And that's the catalyst, the whole thing, the whole rest of the movie. She goes into business with him. He's a Bible salesman and he scams people by searching the obituaries and, and finding out the name of the, uh, the widows left behind. And then he, he has this stack of Bibles in his trunk and he puts the name of the widow on it. And then he goes up to their door, pretends like this order was made before their loved ones passed and guilts them into paying for these. Yep. Plays on their emotions. Yes. And yeah. And, and I mean, it's not even, they're not even pretending that that's not shady, but it turns out that she has a knack for it too, which plays into the whole father daughter thing. In fact, she's smarter than he is. <laughs> And exactly. And every now and again, it'll still come back around to the $200. But ultimately, we know these two are now tied at the hip and they're not going to yeah. separate from one another. Um, and it builds to an ending that's very emotional. And, and, and again, very Chaplin, actually very much. Uh, that's this, it. This isn't a, this isn't a spoiler because it's not nothing like the ending. But emotionally there, it's like the kid, the end of Chaplin's the kid yeah. and the kids taken away from Chaplin and, and they're crying. It's that same feeling yeah. you know that you get from from this movie of how much these two love each other and how much these two need each other but neither one of them wants to admit it at all and it's it's lovely it's beautiful and very beautiful yep i loved it before i had a stepdaughter now that i have a stepdaughter who's who's um well i guess my stepdaughter's a little bit older than addy now but i love it even more now <laughs> if, if you if you're a father with a daughter you should probably see paper moon it'll it'll tug on your heartstrings a bit and that's the thing is i like that there's this very honest like sentimentality in it but it's always 
played with. And one of my favorite scenes was that, uh, like, basically he's like saying, like, they get into an argument again about the $200 and that he's basically saying, well, I'm going to drop you off. And, but then to do that, they have to go get money or they have to get Bibles. <laughs> and she's basically saying, well, you got to go do that. And it's this thing of like, they sort of then start making plans to like, well, if we do this, we can go here and we can get more, you know, and it's just as beautiful. Like you can tell that like, they, they like their each own other. problem within the conversation. Of trying exactly. To to and do. now they're excited about the cons that they're going to do. And it's just such a great <laughs> scene. And I think obviously, Ryan and Tatum having a real life father and daughter dynamic really helps. Obviously there's an advantage there, but it's just such a beautiful scene and like such a funny scene. And you know, it's, it's hard when you have a movie that is, there's a lot like it's black and white. It's a period film in which, you know, historically period films always kind of struggle to you know reach wide audiences, even despite the, uh, how many great films are period pieces, obviously, but it manages to be so many things at once and it it does everything beautifully and it still has its own vibe, its own thing. And I think it's like having just literally rewatched it or literally just recently watched it. I think it's, you can tell Peter Bogdanovich, you know, he understands like that the, there's all the technical aspects of filmmaking, but you can tell like he really understood those characters and their dynamic and what makes the, these characters interesting. And there's just a weird honesty to it and you know you know there's ryan neal's character is a scumbag he sleeps with like you know he's he's sort of a womanizer and that's in in fact when she first meets him like you meet my did you meet mommy and meet meet mama at the bar he's like just because you meet somebody at bar doesn't mean you automatically have kids but like it's just this (laughs) whole thing but there's such don't mean it don't though you know (laughs) exactly don't mean it don't though but uh, it was just a great i think the characters are so brilliant and you know, at one point, uh, a very young Madeline Kahn, she is a she is a dancer at a circuit at like a carnival. And basically, Ryan O'Neill sort of falls for her. And now they're he's going to take her. And then Madeline Kahn has this little girl that I, I don't know what she's supposed to be like her ward or like her, her maid. Wasn't a maid. Yeah. OK, uh, I didn't want to. The little girl is, is black. And I, I was like, I, if it wasn't a maid, I would have felt weird. Like, anyways. Uh, yeah. But yes, but like. The two little girls start to hatch this plot because, in fact, a little I think her name is PJ Thomas. I think the 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 young actress who plays the maid, she is great in it too for the sort of scenes yeah. she's in it. But she hates she hates Malin Khan's character so much. In fact, she she basically refers to her as uh, one thing she's like you know chicken shit and the white part on the top of chicken shit. She's that kind of white, and this is this brilliant <laughs> brilliant dialogue. But like she hates Malin Khan because. Matt Khan's like this, like kind of scummy, She's opportunist. Yeah, opportunist. Exactly. Yeah, you know, she uses her womanly ways, but there's this great scene where she's like, "What'd you say? Let me sit up front. What? What? what why don't you let me in my big tits sit up front?" <laughs> I just like, well, it's such a crazy line, uh, but she's great in it. But you know, it's you know, she plays this kind of scumbaggy character, but. Anyways, it was just like there's so I'm many all there's... A little scumbaggy, you know. Exactly. And I mean, Jesus, Ryan O'Neill and uh, Tatum O'Neill's characters are even even Addy is kind of a little Yeah, they're exactly. all conning each other. And, and it's it, great. There's some really sad behind the scenes stuff on it. I don't know if we go want to go too deep into that, but behind the scenes stuff, I don't I didn't hear anything about that. Well, um Ryan O'Neill, it's it's frequently said Ryan O'Neill was his worst enemy heavy drinker heavy drugs yes um just uh not a good actor i mean good actor but not a good yeah. actor um yeah. 
but the story that I read was um, apparently this was this was recounted to Tatum O'Neill by Vivian Kubrick of all people, because Tatum O'Neill had completely blocked it out of her head. Well, wow. um, but Tatum was visiting the set of Barry Lyndon, which of course Stanley Kubrick directed with starring Ryan O'Neill. Um, she has no firsthand memory of this, but according to Vivian Kubrick, I have a quote here. I'm going to just read it as it's quoted. Ryan O'Neill had been so upset that Tatum had been nominated and he hadn't that on hearing the news, Ryan had socked his daughter. Tatum had blocked that part out. When Tatum won the award, becoming at age 10, the youngest person to ever win a competitive Oscar, neither of her parents were in attendance. Whoa, what? How did I not hear that? So there, there's, there's a dark side to this as well. And they've since, you know, they've patched things up. Tatum O'Neill has famously had her own demons to wrangle with. Yes. But they ended up uh, just in the last 10 years or so, they, they did a reality show because of course they did of, of their reconciliation and them for the first time clean, trying to be father and daughter again. Well, that's good, I guess. Right. It it makes me dislike Ryan O'Neill quite a bit on a personal level. And I, I wasn't even sure whether or not to bring it up, but I feel like in a way it's it's less honest and to leave that out. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I and yeah, I mean it is what it is. That's unfortunate, but you know, God dude, that's that's gotta be one of the more scumbaggy things I've heard from Hollywood though in a while. Like yeah. that's so petty. Ugh, anyways, but Still a great movie. Still, I think, you know, probably the last, just looking at his filmography, um, probably the last truly great movie he made. Um, I could be wrong about that. I mean, I think well, he made some decent Coincidentally, it, it, was, it was, well, maybe not coincidentally. This is, this is what a lot of people talk about is um, the Polly Platt factor. Polly Platt was his costume, uh, was a costume designer when they first met. She became his um, production designer. Uh, starting with Targets and all the way through till Paper Moon. And by then the the affair with Sybil Shepherd had gotten so serious that Polly Platt finally left him because she wasn't going to take the whole like, well, I'm a director and this is my leading lady thing. She, yeah. Like I said, n- none of these people that we're talking about are really, uh, <laughs> none of them are saints. No. But, um, but anyways, was- that was when Polly Platt finally had had enough and she called it quits. And so people basically say that when Polly Platt left, so did Bogdanovich's talent. And there's a lot that you could argue between the lines of like how much of that talent was really Polly Platt's to begin with then. Um, I think that the movies are so incredibly brilliant that there's no way that this was made by one brilliant person who happened to be married to the director. I think it was a partnership. And I think that he suffered in, in not having that partnership. And the first thing he makes without Polly Platt is a complete and total vanity job for Sybil Shepherd called Ever. Daisy Miller. Um, which I finally saw. I had never seen it before because period dramas really aren't my thing. It's a weird movie. I actually enjoyed it. And I think that it gets a bad rap, but I think it gets a bad rap because it's Bogdanovich going to do another movie with Sybil Shepherd, where now she's the star and Polly Platt was, was uh, cast aside. And so I think that the gossip made people dislike the movie unfairly. Um, that being said, it's just not generally my... Um, my choice of genre as to what I go to to on a Saturday or Sunday night. The producer, Frank Yablons, when he saw the first screening of it, Bogdanovich asked him, what do you think? And he said, it's all right. He says, that's all you have to say is that's all right. He says, well, what do you want me to say? He, and finally got out of him. It's fine. It's good. 
but you're Babe Ruth and you just bunted. And I think that sums up what Daisy Miller is. It's it's a strange movie. And if you like Bogdanovich, I fully, you should definitely see it. It's it's out there. It's available. There's probably a director's cut somewhere lost in a can somewhere that's 10 times better. That seems to be the case with a lot of Bogdanovich from this period. I think it gets a bad rap, but I'm not going to get into it too deeply because we've gone on so long. And like I said, it's it's not really the type of thing I love. I will say, though, before we close up there, there the next film, which was another. Uh, yeah. At Long Last Love, 1975, a uh, Cole Porter jukebox musical starring Sybil Shepard and Burt Reynolds. I, I think there's no way that you're not bringing this up. tonight. <laughs> I have to. Um, I have to. It's it's practically impossible to find. Apparently, it was released on Blu-ray about 10 years ago and almost immediately went out of print. It also stars, by the way, Madeline Kahn and Eileen Brennan and John Hillerman. There's a version of it on YouTube. That's all I've ever seen of it. And it's one of those shitty, like, they blasted out the center of the screen and yeah. it's a little off center and it's sped up by, like, just a notch and whatever they can do to get a- around the copyrights of yes. it. Um, so it's really not the ideal way to see it. I would kill to see this in the theater though. I thought it was so fun. I thought it was so dumb. Um, but I, <laughs> but I think that they kind of intended it to be that way. They, they did live recording of their voices on the stage instead of, you know, lip syncing, which is what they do with most modern musicals. Bogdanovich being Bogdanovich, you know, everything's a tribute to somebody else. So this was his tribute to kind of the Fred Astaire, you know, musicals of the thirties. And they all sang live on set while they were dancing, while they were acting. And he just doesn't have actors who have voices that are able to carry it off. And so it all comes off as if everybody has the worst voice. Um, (laughs) And I actually think that had they been able to do it in a studio and give it some production value on, on the the sound, they would have ended up with something a lot more successful. And McDonovich has kind of said as much too. Um, But what's really interesting about it uh, is kind of the history of the Prince is that he, he put out a test screening. It didn't do very well. So he cut it by like three minutes, released that, but didn't have time enough to even watch it himself before it was released. So the version that got released to theaters was the shitty version. It completely tanked. The studio buried it, wanted nothing to do with it. He actually wrote an open apology for the film in like the Hollywood Reporter, like took out a full page ad saying, I'm sorry, the movie was not the cut that I wanted. Maybe someday I'll get to show you, you know, do something else with it. Um, which is kind of a weird thing for any director to do, but certainly yeah. he was he was ashamed of what happened. And then many, many years later, when he thought everybody had forgotten about it, here comes this new thing called Netflix. And somebody calls him up and says, hey, Peter, did you see it? Long Last Love that is on Netflix. It never, like, it might have been one of the first movies put on maybe beta, but it had no <laughs> other release other than that. When I say it was buried, it was buried deep. but when netflix was first starting streaming again about 10 years ago they were going through and finding like all these old studio movies that nobody had released and they were basically beefing up their library with it because they weren't producing any of anything of their own yet and and they were just a startup and so mcdonovich goes well i haven't seen it long last love in a long time i think i'm going to go ahead and watch this and and see if it brings back any memories and he's like i've never seen this cut who cut this? What is this? <laughs> he calls up 20th Century Fox and finds out that apparently after the movie had flopped, there was an editor who worked in, in for the studio 
who's a huge Cole Porter fan and thought that the musical deserved better than it got and made his own personal cut of the film and labeled it as the like end all version of it, Long Last Love. So when Netflix called looking for free stuff to put up, they gave him that cut. And Bogdanovich loves it so much that it's now the official cut of it. Long That's awesome. Long. I never heard that. Unfortunately, this this uh, his guardian angel, who was a big Cole Porter fan and an editor at Fox, uh, passed away a couple of years before he could be recognized for it. Um, but yeah, Bogdanovich gives him full credit for for having saved that movie. And that's the version that's on the Blu-ray. And I know that's not the version that I saw Butcher on YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> so yeah, someday when I have like $300, I'm going to buy that Blu-ray on eBay or something. I don't know how far we're, we're getting close on on the end of this. So I'm just going to give a shout out real quick to uh, the next ones that I consider part of his early career. The Nickelodeon, again, with Ryan O'Neill and Burt Reynolds, which I actually, now I think about it, might have been the first one that I ever saw in Peter Bogdanovich's because I saw it when I was a kid. Um, and that's his, his love letter to silent films, yeah. um, which he desperately wanted to do in black and white and they wouldn't let him. And again, out of print Blu-ray, there's a seven minute longer director's cut in black and white that I didn't oh, wow. see. So maybe we will have to just come back and do Bogdanovich part two <laughs> after we've gotten our hands on some of these uh, rare things. I also uh, checked out St. Jack, which I had never seen before, and I ended up really enjoying um, and would highly recommend. It's not a masterpiece. It's the movie um, Bogdanovich made in 1979 um, at the end of his relationship with Sybil Shepherd. That's um, <laughs> literally about a pimp uh, who wants to uh, build up his fortune in Singapore so that he can afford to retire in the United States, uh, played by Ben Gazzara. Um, and it's actually got a really big heart to it. It's a little bit of a, a mishmash of, of things. Um, it was actually going to be directed by Orson Welles and Bogdanovich at the last minute decided to direct it himself based on Sybil Shepard's advice. And that was what caused the rift. And he and Orson didn't speak again until... Uh, the year Orson passed away and he finally patched it up at the, at the end. But if you're a Ben Gazzara fan. Which everybody should be a Ben Gazzara fan. Exactly. Uh, this is must-see Gazzara. This, this almost feels to me like Bogdanovich doing a um, John Cassavetes movie. You know, like his tribute to Cassavetes. Exactly, yeah. And then uh, the last thing that I think would be kind of like necessary viewing if you really want to understand Bogdanovich is 1981's They All Laughed. Uh, starring Ben Gazzara again, and this time John Ritter, along with Audrey Hepburn and the late Dorothy Stratton, which I don't think we're going to have time to get too much into that story, but Dorothy Stratton was was the tragedy in Bogdanovich's life. Um, she was a Playboy play, Playmate of the Month, or Playmate of the Year, rather. He fell in love with her when he met her at the Playboy Mansion. She Again, this this is one of those problematic things, you know, by this time, Bogdanovich is, you know, our age and she was like 18. Um, say what you will about that. Um, but that's not the that's not the crux of this story. It was um, very unfortunate. He cast her in this movie and they they shot the movie together and they started their affair. And she was married to this creep who had come out to California with her and, and okay. they had together they had gotten her the playboy gig um, and he was a photographer and that was really what he wanted to do and um people always assumed that it was the relationship between Bogdanovich and, and dorothy that ruined uh or that got her killed she was killed by her her husband, her husband. At, at that point 
And Bogdanovich is, has later revealed that he thinks that he was responsible in a different way for it because he actually seemed to be fine with the fact that she was leaving him and, and moving in with Peter Bogdanovich. What got him upset was that Hugh Hefner, um, he'd shown up at a couple of Playboy parties because that's what he did. He was a photographer. So Dorothy and Peter stopped going to some of these Playboy parties and Hef really wanted her there. She was Playmate of the Year. And he, you know, it's kind of like Miss America has responsibilities. I guess Playmate of the Year has responsibilities to present. But they didn't show up for like a party that he had had. And Hef basically asked Peter, like, well, what do you know about, you know, this guy? Was it because this guy shows up, her ex-husband shows up to the parties? And he's, yeah, yeah, that might be it. Well, should I bar him from the house like will you guys come if i bar him from the house and bogdanovich hardly knew him and he says yeah yeah well, you know whatever i'm sure that'll make us all feel better and so what bogdanovich surmises is that what really killed her was them playing a part in the end of his career they ruined yeah. him he was no longer invited to the playboy mansion which was what his career was so it was some actually, great uh true crime documentaries about this yeah. yes and he does get into it in in the interviews that i mentioned before uh, he he gets into it a little bit with mark Marin, um but he gets into it heavily with uh ben mankowitz on that uh inside story turner classic movies thing anyways i i don't want to end this on too much of a bummer but <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know just just murder and sadness uh, but but anyway, no studio would release at long last love. And so Bogdanovich ended up buying it himself, distributing it himself. Nobody went. It's a really weird movie. People like Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach uh, praise it. Quentin Tarantino praises it. But most people, I don't think, really fully understand it. I, I finally saw it and I, I found it entertaining, but I also see how confusing of a film it is. It was after that, he did Mask, the Rocky Dennis story, which... Yeah. Uh, has a lot which i think is the most contemporary film of his i've seen yeah um but really after that he he bankrupted himself on on doing the dorothy stratton thing and uh was just kind of on a personal level completely destroyed too especially with feeling that he was responsible for it if he had just responded to hugh hefner differently then things might have gone very differently um but you know, his, his career never really recovered from that. And he ended up uh, doing a lot of TV movies and things for money. And, and he kind of had a resurgence in the last uh, decade or so of his life. He had a part on The Sopranos, he started to act a lot more. Uh, he finally started to direct some things that he was more in charge of, like uh, The Cat's Meow was an example. Um, kind of felt Which like I heard him. was pretty good. Yeah, I it, never it, thought, it, but it I heard was like good. vintage Bogdanovich, but I haven't seen it in a while. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you have anything to add on. No, because like I said, I mean, the thing is, for the longest time, and it was the thing I thought about earlier this afternoon, is the thing I most associate Bogdanovich with is documentaries about filmmaking, specifically like the 70s era, the sort of, uh, what is it, the, the new, what is it, the new Hollywood era, whatever. Yeah, new Hollywood. Um, yeah, that's really, because he's always that talking head in documentaries. And, and I mean, you know, he's been in some phenomenal documentaries. He's been involved with some you know documentaries but he's just always been into me more of a talking head even than a filmmaker yeah he's um, a film historian oh, oh yeah you almost get the feeling and i would compare it to tarantino in this sense i think they would rather watch movies than make them movies yeah i think like for i mean i don't want to say anything too crazy let me just say 
Peter Bogdanovich definitely earned his place in, in cinema history because he made a few phenomenal movies. But yeah, I mean, you can tell he loves movies and that even if his latter work didn't show the promise of his early work, like, you know, he everything I've ever, every time I've ever seen an interview with him, he's always like has like a lot of knowledge and a lot of like interesting, you know, things about Hollywood history or just even his own experiences. So, you know, um, it just, you know, looking at his filmography today was very educational because it was like, oh shit, I didn't know one. I, I didn't even literally know half of these movies existed. Like I've never heard of these movies, but didn't realize how, you know, that he tailed off like that. But uh, again, you know, Paper Moon specifically as having just literally seen it today, sort cemented the fact that like he's definitely had, uh, whether it was, you know, you know, he shares the, the, the esteem with Polly or whatever, but like, yeah, he definitely, he was a brilliant filmmaker at one point, you know, and, you know, it's sad to see that he passed away this year. Uh, 2022 is already off to a crazy start taking people from us, but uh, yeah, no shit. So it goes, but anyways, but yeah, I mean, it was very exciting. I, I figured even if he hadn't passed away, we would have gotten around to this because he does, he's very important and yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and I think we should revisit. I think we should sort of some of the more obscure films or like you said, the ones that are sort of out of print or hard to get to. And like I said, I will watch uh, what's up doc before our next time we record and I will share my feelings. All right, cool. Uh, and I'd like to see Nickelodeon again. I watched, I rewatched Nickelodeon. I mean, I mean I, the thing is, I, it sounded familiar. And like I said, I, I, I mean, it's probably, you know, one of the films that I haven't seen in the morning that, you know, I'm most aware of or was most aware of. But when I was, you know, again, preparing for this, that was one of the ones I was like, shoot, yeah, if I, you know, I, I need to either, if I've seen it, I don't remember it. But, um, you know, at this age, I barely remember my own name. But, I was like, this one sounds like something I need. I would like to see. So it is it, fun. It, it, it's yeah. it's silly, and I would like to see this longer cut. I watched the regular cut, the one I'm familiar with. I watched it again for our first episode about Burt Reynolds, but it just never <laughs> it never came up in our conversation. But I did rewatch it again, and I can vouch he's very funny in it. Ryan O'Neill's very funny. In it. Ryan O'Neill's doing a kind of a Harold Lloyd character in this one, which I love Harold so, Lloyd. And then yeah. the thing is, like when you said though, like a black and white director's cut i was like oh i that that i would like to see so yeah absolutely all right man i guess that closes it on peter bignanovich for us for now and uh, i'm sorry we've been away so long we'll we'll try to make it short to come back and see you again hopefully with something that doesn't uh where the story doesn't end with <laughs> murder and sorrow and bankruptcy and whatever but <laughs> I, I i just don't think that we're doing bignanovich justice if we don't express the sorrow that went into yeah. uh, especially that phase of his life um fo following so closely on the heels of of such incredible highs in a career Absolutely. that he loved so uh don't know what we're going to do next time but i guarantee it'll be fun <laughs> i well i certainly uh I, I i hope for our listeners that they enjoyed this episode uh, I enjoyed it though, Devin. Like I say, every time we record, I enjoy these. Uh, I it's always educational. You know, you blew my mind with a John Ritter fact. So, uh, <laughs> so hopefully the audience enjoys it as much as I do. But thanks again, man. It's always a pleasure to get get uh, with you to be able to partner up for this podcast. So, uh, I hope our listeners enjoyed it. I know I did. And uh, until the next time we record, uh, I uh, I don't know what else to say from that. <laughs> I sort of forgot my point, but that's not uncommon. So it's my old right. age. Uh, it happens to all of us. All right, folks, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.